Hello, God's Peace. Welcome back to our podcast. Today I'm joined by Jamin Holmgren and Pastor Jay Widener of the Lorium Shining Light Apostolic Lutheran Church. Jay is also the president of the Inner Lutheran Seminary in Hancock, Michigan. Jamin and Jay, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Today we're going to be talking about the ministry and the nature of the call. Uh, Jay's here to help us with this discussion. So once again, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Jay, I'd like to know, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Widener doesn't really sound too finished. So how did you end up in the Apostolic Lutheran Church? Uh, actually, it came about through a search for uh, seminaries. I actually came hook, got hooked up to Apostolic Lutheranism through the seminary itself when it was in Plymouth, Minnesota. Um, I had uh, gone to see my local pastor, and he had given me a, a book of all the uh, Lutheran schools in the United States. And he told me to pray about where I should go, and so I did. And um, there were actually only two schools within there that taught um, or emphasized the fact that the scripture was the inerrant word of God. And so um, I applied and wound up being accepted at the seminary and then came to the seminary. And that's how I got, um, became aware of apostolic Lutheranism, really. I hadn't known anything about it beforehand. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, I grew up in a, uh, what was at that time when I was born, it was an Augustana Synod church. So it would have been a Swedish Lutheran church that uh, eventually joined with the LCA. So I was raised in the, in the LCA, actually confirmed in the LCA. What's the LCA? Uh, Lutheran Church in America. Okay. It's, now, it's now part of the ELCA. Okay. So you found the, um, the Inner Lutheran Seminary in a book about Lutheran Seminary or a, a pamphlet that had information about Lutheran seminaries? Yeah, all the Lutheran schools in the United States were listed within it. That's cool. So when did you first go to an apostolic Lutheran church? Was it as part of after you got to seminary or? Yes, uh, 1979. Yeah. Wow, interesting. Um, so would, would that have been in Plymouth? Yeah, it was it was the Plymouth Apostolic Lutheran Church. Pastor Ken was the pastor then. Okay. So that must have been quite a change for you going from the LCA to going to a, the seminary like ours, eh? It was, it was quite a drastic change. Yeah, it, it, was, it was not really what I expected. Um, I had been raised more in a high church Lutheran tradition, probably, probably not really fully high church, but certainly in comparison to our worship tradition would be a, a high church uh, tradition. Um, so I was a little bit shocked uh, when I, when my wife, who of course now is deceased, uh, Teresa and I first went to church there. We were kind of uh, wondering uh, what was, <laughs> what kind of Lutheran this was. Uh, but then we, I mean, we, we went through it. it. People were wonderful. You know, they've always been wonderful. So we, we enjoyed that very, very much and felt very much at home there. What led you to look for a seminary that you had mentioned just briefly that, that, you know, kind of treated the scriptures as the inner word of God. 
what led you to having that be a criteria other than, you know, maybe some of the other things that might've been important uh, to you? Yeah, it was uh, the pastor that I had in, in my LCA church was, was very uh, strong on that. Mm -hmm. And he questioned some of the stances that had been taken within the LCA at the time. Um, mm. He didn't have a lot of confidence in the training that would be given there. So he, he steered me in that direction. Okay. So he didn't, um, he didn't, he, did he discourage you from going to the LCA seminary or? Yeah. Yeah, he did. I mean, he was, he was kind of like, well, honestly, his words were to me, um, if you go there, you won't come out the same. Mm. So, okay. um, he, he was very, uh, very clear about that. Um, that he, he, personally just didn't feel that he could recommend that I go there. And so I, I didn't. Um, yeah. That, that's an interesting aspect there where the influence of your, of your current pastor or your at the time pastor, um, he was very interested in steering you right and heading you in the right direction. And he could understand based on apparently his, you know, experiences that, there was something just not quite right about that. Yeah, he was a he was a wonderful man. He was really yeah. a very good man. What, very what was his pastor. name? Uh, Carl Konigsberger was his name. Actually, I think that he's long since very Catholic. German. Yeah, he was very German, but he <laughs> actually had been raised Roman Catholic. Okay. And I think he became a Lutheran in his thirties. Then mm. he went to Lutheran seminary. Okay. Um, but yeah, he was, he was really a, a wonderful man. He was very, yeah. uh, he did a uh, uh, Teresa and I's wedding and stuff mm -hmm. like that. He did all those things. He was, yeah. he was a good, good guy. Yeah. Yeah. I love hearing about how pastors had that sort of significant influence on, on people, not just other pastors, but just in, in general. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't mean to um, toot our own horn, but I, I love our church. And I think um, the way that we, we do things is um, very valuable in honoring the scriptures. And so I'm wondering, <clears throat> sorry. So I'm wondering um, when you first attended an apostolic Lutheran church, was there, um, what was a positive thing that you noticed about the way we did it as opposed to how you grew up? It, it was very, um, very scripturally oriented, you know, listening to Pastor Ken preach. Mm -hmm. He was uh, very scripturally oriented, very, very bound to the scripture in his preaching. Um, the church itself was, was very scripturally centered in that way. You know, it, it, in Lutheranism, you know, even Robert Price told me this when I was at seminary in the Missouri Synod, you know, that's all adiaphora. You know, th those things are all indifferent. You can have different numbers of scripture readings. You can have all sorts of different things. You can do things in a different order. You can do a liturgy, so to speak, a higher church liturgy. You can't, you, you don't have to. In fact, he was inviting me then that, that all the apostolic Lutherans should join the Missouri Synod. You know, that was, that was what he was saying. 
So Robert Preuss, was he, he was the president of the Missouri Synod in the 70s or 80s? He was the president of the uh, Fort Wayne Seminary. Oh, Fort Wayne his Seminary. Brother, his brother Jacob was the president of the seminary, you, or president of the synod. You, you mentioned uh, adiaphora. Can you define that for our listeners? Yeah, it's just a Latin word that means things indifferent. I think it's derived out of Greek, actually, but yeah. Yeah, so things that don't really matter necessarily. They may matter in certain ways, but they're not, they're not like super critical. Right. They aren't the things, they aren't the necessities. Mm-hmm. You know, right. you, you can have them or not have them. So it's like matters of indifference, right? Things that are... Yeah, that's, neither, that's literally what it means. Things you know, that are neither different uh, commanded things. nor uh, rejected or... Yeah, it, it's neither commanded or... Um, it doesn't have any mandate. It doesn't right. have any necessity in performing it. Mm-hmm. So you uh, went to the Missouri Synod Seminary after you went to ours. How'd that work out? Yes, it was it was great. You know, it was very helpful to me. Um, that's where I really got my Greek mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, some of the foundational training. It was very, very good. I had tremendous respect, still do have tremendous respect for the Missouri Synod. Um, they, they too, they were just wonderful people. They were very, very, very good to me when I was there. Uh, so which, which one did you go to first, ours or the Missouri Synod? I went to the, the Inter-Lutheran Seminary in 1979, but then while I was at, um, actually while I was attending our, our seminary, I started to attend Robbinsdale uh, LCMS Church, which was right near our house. And so I started to go there. And when I went there, they, they immediately uh, wanted me to, to go to their seminary. Um, <laughs> and I started to serve a couple of vacancies in the Missouri Synod. So that's kind of where I started to be a pastor, was mm-hmm. already about 1980 or so. So I served a couple of congregations for the Missouri Synod because they had vacancies. So I started to do that. And so then I got called away to, for a time. Yeah, I went to uh, Concordia, Fort Wayne. Mm-hmm. Um, spent about a year and a half there or so. And then how'd you end up coming back? Uh, that's just a great story. You know, the, the automobile industry collapsed during that time period. Of course, you're too young to know that. But um, during that time period, there was a pretty good sized recession in the United States. And we honestly just couldn't find a way to live anymore. It was just, it was tough. Everything was really hard. So um, my wife and I moved back to Pennsylvania. And when we moved back to Pennsylvania, I was actually working for a vending company. I was managing a branch of a vending company. Mm. And uh, Verna Hendrickson, Pastor Ken's wife, called me up one day and said, Jay, what are you doing? And I told her, well, you know, Verna, I'm working at this vending company and doing this kind of stuff. She said, Jay, and if you didn't know Verna, you don't understand this. If you did, then you know. She said, right to me, she said, Jay, the gift and the call of God is irrevocable. So she quoted um, out of Romans 11. And she says, you get back here right away. And that was it. The phone call was over. Wow. And you don't argue with Verna. <laughs> So, <laughs> not. so within a month or so my wife Teresa and I were on our way back to Minneapolis and 
back in seminary. And so that was just her telling you to come back as a student. Yeah. Yeah. So how long, how long, when did you, cause eventually you became an instructor at the seminary, right? How did that work? Well, what happened was that even while I was at the seminary, I became an instructor because now I was pretty thoroughly trained in Greek. Mm. So I was able to really teach Greek. Uh, at that time, we didn't have anybody that could teach Greek except Dr. Sarnivar, and he didn't teach Greek anymore. So, mm. um, so I started to teach Greek, and so I got started to instruct. I was actually teaching my classmates at the mm. time. So that must have been hard for them. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually we were pretty good friends of mine. So yeah, we, we did pretty well with that. So okay. who were your classmates then that you were teaching? Uh, largely Bruce Bergstedt. You know, Bruce and I have always been together in class. Mm -hmm. um, I had uh, trying to think if I had Kirk Otto's dad at that time too. Um, and Tom Kumpala was also in class with us at that time. I think those were the guys that I had. Mm -hmm. So then um, how long were you an instructor before you became president of the seminary? Actually, what happened is I, my first call was to ESCO, Minnesota, to the ESCO Apostolic Lutheran Church. So I went there with Pastor Hillman when Pastor Raymond Hillman was, was there. So I did that in 85. I graduated from the seminary in 85, wound up going to ESCO, served in ESCO for four years, just about four years. And during that time, I used to go every Monday, I would drive back down to Minneapolis and then teach. So I would teach uh, when Pastor Wayne Juntnin was, was the dean of the seminary and president of the seminary, mm -hmm. I would go down there then and teach on Mondays. Um, so that was just how that, that went. So that's how I started to be a, an instructor. It was really on a part-time basis. So I heard when you first got to ESCO that you were given quite the lesson in Finn. Um, before you your first time speaking would you mind sharing that story do you know what I'm talking about I don't know if I should do that or not <laughs> they you know they had this wonderful thing which I really love you know they had Finnish song service and I loved Finnish song service they would have it every other week on Thursday and we would have Finnish song service and one of the guys there who I really grew to love he just had kind of an interesting sense of humor and he, he talked to me right away and he said, well, you know, when you're, when you're there in that song service, he says, you know, those people would really love it if you would speak some Finnish to them. And he says, you don't know any Finnish, do you? And I said, no, I don't, you know, I don't know any Finnish. He says, well, here's what I want you to do. He says, next time that you're there, he says, and somebody greets you, you just say to them, heist enough <laughs> Which, of course, if you if you don't know Finnish, means smell my belly button. <laughs> so, and, and fortunately, Pastor Hillman was right there, and he was laughing in his office door. Oh, that's good. He, and he waved to me after this guy left, and he said, come over here. So I did. I went over there, and he says, don't say that. <laughs> he, told me, he told me what it was. So I never did say that. Although I did it jokingly. Now, after that, I could do yeah, it jokingly. And of yeah, course, they, they all got a huge kick out of it. You know, oh, yeah, of course. Hilarious. But, um, 
but yeah, so that was that was my introduction to the Finnish language. Those are the first two words I learned in Finnish. So. <laughs> there you go. Well, mo I think most of us who grew up in Finnish households, those were similar words that we learned first. Yeah, I it seems like you always, as a kid, want to learn the bad words. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. So then you've you've been in the ministry for almost forty years, then, eh? Yeah, right about forty years. Yeah. Mm. So other than uh, Pastor Konigsberger, was that his name? Yeah. What yeah. other pastors have made a big impact in your life? Well, of course, Pastor Ken. Pastor Ken mm -hmm. Hendrickson was, was a big influence on my life. He, he's the first one who ever blessed me with the forgiveness of sins. Mm. And I've never forgotten that. You know, that was like a lightning bolt that went through me. And that's when I first really understood the full significance of that. Um, so did they not that, practice that in the LCA private? No, commission? they didn't practice that. Um, mm -hmm. Now they did talk about it um, to some degree, but it wasn't something that was overtly practiced. You know, they mm -hmm. did the public confession that was part of the liturgy, yeah. but they really didn't emphasize a private confession at the time. Mm -hmm. um, even though Melanchthon in the apology of, of the Augsburg confession in the 13 article, uh, 13th article mentions it as as being sacramental mm -hmm. um it, it really it was not something that was overtly practiced in right. in most of the churches of the time so it was you know I, I always tell that story when i was a little kid i told a lie once and it really plagued me it would plague me all the time you know i would wake up sometimes in just a cold sweat over that lie and um, I remember telling that to Pastor Ken. Pastor Ken looked at me and he said, well, do you want to be free of that sin? And I said, yes, I do. And he, you know, if you knew Pastor Ken, he had those hands like catcher's mitts. His hands could like engulf your whole head without any mm -hmm. problem, you know. He laid those hands on me and he said, you believe that sin forgiven in the name and blood of Jesus and you'll be mm -hmm. at peace. And holy Toledo, it was just like lightning. Wow. And I can tell people very clearly, I've never, ever experienced that fear of that lie ever again. Mm. It has never affected me again. That's amazing. Yeah, it had a huge, huge effect on me yeah. and, and really was absolutely transforming in, in my life in, in understanding the power of the keys right. you know, was, was really quite stunning. Then I could relate a little bit more to Luther, you know, and stuff like that, of what he, he yeah. talked about in the experience that he had. Um, so he had a very profound effect upon me, you know, and of course, Pastor Wayne Juntinen, you know, Pastor Wayne was just a wonderful man. Mm -hmm. um, very spiritual man, but, but very, very gracious and kind man. Um, he had that personality that you just look up to. Mm -hmm. uh, so he he was really a, a wonderful wonderful uh, pastor in that regard too, and I mean there's many in our federation. I always think, I always you know I had Ben and Onston, Ben Johnson and Onston Trenton do my ordination. You know, mm -hmm. those are two guys I just love. I just love those yeah. guys. I love I love Ben's spirit. You know, I've mm -hmm. heard him called Gentle Ben, and I don't know if he knows the background of that or anything, but I mean he's just. I've always respected and loved him for that. You know, he's yeah. just a gentle, gentle spirit and powerful Christian man. And mm -hmm. Unston too. You know, yeah. Unston's just a very spiritual brother. And, and so 
I mean, there's a lot of them, you know, when you, when you really get to know them, there's so many of them. Yeah. But, but those are guys that had very, very profound effect on me. Yeah. So what about theologians or church fathers? Oh, there's tons of those. I mean, of course, Bonhoeffer, you know, I'm a big Bonhoeffer guy. You know, I've yeah. read pretty much everything that he's written, both in English and German. So, I mean, it, it, it's, he's a profound influence. Uh, Helmut Thielicke, uh, his, his dogmatics and ethics that I still use in the seminary. You know, I still use those books. It's, hmm. it's, it's very, very influential. Uh, Dr. James Veltz from the Missouri Synod, the guy that taught me the, the Greek and taught me exegesis. I mean, he's just, uh, he was, a, he's a big mentor in my life. Uh, yeah. And of course, Dr. Sarnivara, you know, uh, Dr. Sarnivara was, was another one of those guys, very gentle spirited guy, but extremely knowledgeable. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of those in church fathers. It's always St. Irenaeus. You know, and he's not somebody that most people know at all or anything like that. And, and people can look at this in kind of a weird way. But when I was really struggling with, with things in the church, um, because, you know, we went through the Jesus freak movement and all that kind of stuff when mm -hmm. I was a kid. And I really struggled with a lot of the stuff that I saw there. So I went back to see that pastor, Carl Konigsberger. Mm -hmm. And I was telling him about some of these struggles, you know, that I had with some of these things. And he was really trying to, to counsel me to some degree. And, and he was saying, well, you know, you need to, you need to settle down and read some good stuff. Mm -hmm. so I went down to the local Catholic university, which was Gannon University in my town. And I had read, I don't know, someplace in one of these books, I had, I don't know if it was in Lever's, Luther's Doctrine of Justification, but they had mentioned St. Irenaeus. Mm. So I looked up books by St. Irenaeus, and surprisingly, I found his Against Heresies, which is his most significant work, and nobody else had ever taken it out of the library. I couldn't believe it, you know? So I was the first one, and as far as I know, <laughs> the only one to take it out of that library. And right. I sat there and read that thing from cover to cover. Mm -hmm. And I was just so astonished at the knowledge of St. Irenaeus. And so, um, and his thorough acquaintance with the scripture and how he was able to so powerfully argue out of the scripture, even though I didn't understand a lot of the background historically at that time of what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. So I always say, you know, he's my good buddy. You know, St. <laughs> Irenaeus is, is my good buddy, you know. I thought I was yeah. your good buddy. <laughs> oh, yeah, you are too. You are too. But you're a little younger. A, a little. Uh, I looked him up a little bit here. So, um, so as I often say on these podcasts, my my role here is to be the guy that asks the dumb questions. Um, and so I, I looked it up on Wikipedia. Saint Irenaeus uh, was a Greek, Greek uh, born in. Um, let's see here, what is now Turkey, I guess, and. Uh, was born sometime between the years 120 to 140. So this is very, very early church. Yes. Uh, brought up in a Christian family rather than converting as an adult at that time. That was probably more common to be converted. Um, and uh, a priest, uh, let's see here, for, yes. So uh, that's that's pretty interesting. I, I read a book which you're, um, I'm sure, familiar with, Early Christian Doctrines uh, by Kelly. 
And, oh, sure. And there, there was a lot of amazing information in there. Probably talked about Arrhenius. I need to go back uh, and go read that book again. <laughs> yeah, the stuff on it, the rule of faith. The stuff right? on the rule of faith in there will cover Irenaeus. Perfect. Yeah, it's, that's fantastic. So is Against All Heresies your favorite book? Or what's your favorite book? No, none of those books can be your favorite book because those are just too hard to read. They're, they're <laughs> Aside from the Bible. They're tough. They're tough right. to read. Right. Uh, my favorite book. Now we're talking outside the Bible. And, yeah, aside from the Bible. Any, okay, any, aside from the Bible. And you could give us a, a non-theological one and a theological one if you want to do it. Okay, there's two non-theological ones. That would be the physics of Christianity and the quantum case for God. Okay. Um, you know, quantum physics is really, uh, that's my kind of like pet thing. Yeah. And, and that, that just fascinates me. Well, let me ask you then, what what do you think about uh, the string theory and multiverse kind of theory in terms of how that relates to uh, a created universe? Yeah, I, I think it's just wonderful. And I think <laughs> I think that it's very much supported by the scripture. Okay. Because um, in Ephesians, that mm. it tells us that we're seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. Mm-hmm. And yet all we also have a localized existence here in this earth. Mm. So therefore we're technically non-local. That's very and, interesting. And so it fits very closely with the concept of, of quantum theory, yeah. the whole aspect of string theory. Sure. Um, all of these understandings of that, I think the scripture of course is miles ahead of that you know right. and and we're just kind of scratching the surface and starting to catch up well as it should be as the revealed truth um by god we have to catch up with our own reason eventually you know to some small degree but but the revealed truth will always be anyway that's a whole nother podcast episode oh, we'll man. probably have to do something yeah we're but... gonna have to have yeah. you back for that one i think i don't even know what you <laughs> I don't know what thread string theory is or the multi. Yes, it's a it's it's something that I also share a fascination with to to some degree. So I'd love to talk more about that with Jay. But yes, you were you were saying that those were your two non theological books. You also have a theological one. The theological book is Crisis Center by Bonhoeffer or Christology (laughs) in German. Um, It's it's amazing book. Um, That that also was a huge. Um, had a huge effect when I first read that book mm-hmm. uh, in terms of understanding the, the Christ for me. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that whole concept of being in Christ was very, very significant. And of course, is reflected very strongly out of uh, Ephesians, the first chapter. Okay, so let's, um, let's shift gears here a little bit and move on to our topic. So we're going to be talking about uh, the, the office of the ministry and the nature of the call. Um, God said through the prophet Jeremiah in the third chapter, the 15th verse, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Can you briefly describe for us how God has fulfilled that promise for his church? Yeah. Um, I mean, he said very clearly he gives shepherds. And, and literally, that's what that word means. And that's what a pastor is, is a shepherd. Um, of course, the flock 
is 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 the church, the body of Christ. Um, the understanding here, of course, is this is what he's saying. Now, by the word, and this is always the agency, the proper agency, it's not in the person. It's in the word. By the word, God gives people to declare that word, to, to, to bring that word to them. And that word then gives them knowledge and understanding. You know, so, so fundamentally, you know, that's one part of the office of the ministry, a big part, especially probably in our, in our understanding of things, is that aspect of, of preaching and, and proclamation. You know, and that's what God is really talking about, is, is to understand he's going to raise people up to, uh, to really minister to his people. Uh, through the word. So practically speaking, how does he raise people up? That's a very good question. Like, like all questions concerning God, uh, they're always a little dangerous to try <laughs> to answer because yeah. only God can tell you what God is doing. Um, so I always am a little skittish about those things. Uh, uh, God does what he does when he's going to do it and never explains it to anybody. You know, the scripture says very clearly he asks for counsel from no one. Um, so, so he does it. And that, that's what brings us into this sense of the nature of the call and understanding the call, because that, that's very difficult within Lutheranism. Uh, within Lutheranism, we tend to look at the outward call we, we essentially say, well, a person can say they have a call all they want, but a congregation has to confirm that. A congregation has to call them in order for that to be physically represented as a call. And, and I understand that, I, I think. You know, I'm always going to tell you I think I understand things because like I was telling my class this morning, I'm pretty sure I don't really know much of anything um, when I was <laughs> I a little younger. This. <laughs> I thought I knew some stuff, but now I'm pretty sure I don't. Mm. So, but when that, when it comes to that concept of the call, I think he was very concerned about having like an elevated priesthood mm. where a person could claim, or like with the enthusiast, where, and by that he meant like what probably we would look at as like radical charismatics nowadays would probably mm. be the closest thing to what he means by that where people could say, well, I, I have a call, so now I can tell you what to do and you need to follow me and, and wind up with a cultic type of following. Right, right. And I think he really wanted to avoid that. I think That's Luther, Luther, right? What's that? You, the he you're referencing is Luther? Luther, and I think the, the early Lutheran, for lack of a better term, uh, probably we call them theologians, maybe fathers or something along those lines, mm -hmm. but... They, they really wanted to avoid that, right. that, that you would not have that. So it needed to be a corporate identification within mm -hmm. the church, that the church would recognize that this person has those abilities that, mm -hmm. should, that God bestows upon those that he calls to the office. We recognize that. So we then physically provide you with the call. Mm -hmm. And now, 
And yet I can't say that there's not an internal call. I think maybe they go a little overboard with that, you know, that, that, yeah, I do think there's an accompanying internal call. I think that a, a person gets that sense. I can say from my own experience, that's what happened. You know, I tell people a story all the time. When I was four years old, my mother was holding my hand. We were walking out of church. My dad was one of the counters that day, so he was counting the money. We had walked through the church office and told my dad we were going walking home, which was right next door to the church. So we were just walking next door, and my mother had hold of my hand, and she turned to me and said, Jay, she says, I want you to understand, I'm praying that one day either you or your brother will be a pastor. And I always joke and I say, well, I knew my brother wasn't going to do it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, and I remember that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then when I was older, uh, Teresa and I were dating at the time. And she was someplace with one of her friends doing something. And I was out in the car waiting for her. And I was reading through the Bible. And, and God had impressed upon my heart that that was going to come true. And mm. I read the call of Jeremiah mm. in Jeremiah chapter one. And God really instilled upon me that, yeah, you know, this is what I intend for you to do. And that's when I went back to see Pastor Konigsberger and talked mm. with him about it. And that's when he gave me the booklet of the seminaries, you know, and mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. Um, so I don't ever dismiss the concept of an interiorized call. But I'm, I, too, with Luther, I'm very cautious of that. Right. When somebody tells me that they're called, you know, yeah. there, there's got to be evidence of that. There's got to be support. You know, Pastor Konigsberger was very supportive of me. Right. He told me very clearly that he, he could see evidence of that fruit in me, which I knew was not me. Because right. there would be no evidence of that fruit in me. And even my brother-in-law at the time. He said something to me that really shocked me. And he said, you know, Jay, he said, I, I just marvel at your patience because I was trying to teach my sister how to play racquetball. <laughs> and he told me, he says, you know, your patience is just stunning. He says, I just, I just can't imagine that. And mm -hmm. I knew that was not me. Yeah. You know, that, that's not me. You know, yeah. I, I was not patient the whole time growing up. Anything <laughs> Yeah. So there were things that indicated that reality. But yeah. like I say, I'm always suspicious about an interior call. I think there needs to be definite confirmation of it yeah. within people of faith and also within the congregation. Yeah, that's something that uh, I really, really struggled with when I first got to seminary. And I'm choosing my words very carefully here. And you told me that I would be preaching. Um, I really struggled, um, even after I'd been preaching and, ser and serving different congregations, after I'd been in seminary for a couple of years, even by, um, even to a lesser extent, serving at Eastside uh, during my internship. But I really struggled with the feeling that I had created all of this for myself, that I didn't have a call from God, but I had just put myself in the right position and created a call for, for Nick. And um, so when I got out of seminary, I... Um, I was really adamant that I was not going to look around for any type of preaching opportunity. Um, I will be, we're um, serving some congregations uh, up North in the copper country, but 
Um, we were actually planning on moving to North Dakota or to Texas, where either to work in the oil fields or work with my brother. And uh, one morning I was in, in Washington State for the convention in the summertime. I'd gone home to take the summer off. Um, was newly married um, after graduating seminary. And I got a call from a guy I didn't know uh, from a place I'd never been. And he asked me if I wanted to be a pastor. But I don't think he knew that I was on the West Coast because he called me at like five in the morning. So it must have been like, he must have been thinking I was out East or something because I got that call and he said, I, um, he said, so I hear you're looking to become a pastor. And I said, no. And he's like, oh, well, we're looking for a pastor and we were, we were hoping you'd consider being a candidate. And I said, well, I'd, I'd consider that, but I, I wouldn't say I'm looking for it. Um, yeah. And just because I'd really struggled with that notion of creating anything for myself, it just seemed like sure. uh, just, it just didn't sit well. There was so much insecurity with whether or not I was doing the right thing. And uh, so then I went to sleep um, after I hung up with him, after agreeing that he, um, and he asked me if I could come out there and preach on my way home. And uh, I woke up probably at like nine ish and uh, just was going through a quiet morning and I didn't even think about it until like noon or one o'clock. I was like, wait a second, was that real? <laughs> and uh, I, I, I remember telling my wife about it. And so we decided to stick around in Michigan just until this wacky congregation in New York Mills got it out of their head that they wanted me to be a candidate <laughs> for their pastor job. But uh, so I, I, really, um, I really do think that there is a great benefit to the pastor when they are taught that when there is a confirming call, um, simply because you have that peace of mind, because I don't know if I could ever do this job if it wasn't for that, you know, knowing that God definitely put me here because it's, yeah. there's so many, so much room for insecurity and mistakes and all mm. that kind of doubt and stuff that comes into it. So I, I certainly understand the need for that confirming outer call. So one thing that is kind of interesting about being a pastor versus being a software developer like me or any other type of, you know, if you're a mechanical engineer or a nurse or something, people p are encouraged and to, to put themselves in positions where they can then get jobs in those fields. It's, it would be very weird for someone to be like, well, I, I really want to be, uh, you know, a physical trainer, but no, no gyms are calling me and, and you're like, well, have you applied? You know, like what, what, what's going on here? It's a very, it flips things kind of on its head a little bit. So it, I, to me, looking from the outside, it puts pastors in a little bit of a weird spot and it can be a strange kind of feeling because that's your conditioned all your life to do something completely the opposite way. Yeah, it is. It, it is a fairly unique type of situation. Um, yeah. People often refer back to Timothy, where, where Paul basically says the one who desires the office of a bishop desires a good thing. Mm. And of course, bishop there is actually referring more to what we would call a pastor, an okay. overseer of a congregation. Um, and he says very clearly, has the sense of desiring it. You know, if, mm -hmm. if you desire it, that's a good thing. Um, so I think there kind of is that conflict. I think all of us go through that conflict to some degree. Um, some churches do make it a little more vocational in the sense that, well, you go to seminary, you, you directly, I think it's still that way in the Missouri Synod, you go to seminary, you graduate from the seminary, and essentially 
the synod and the district presidents or whatever all get together and you just wind up assigned to a church. You know, um, I think it's that way in the ELCA to some degree too. I think Mm -hmm. that's the way it is. Um, Now other church groups do it differently, Mm -hmm. you know, where, where you're, you're kind of in this sort of thing of, of more along the lines of, well, what, brings you to this point and they kind of get wind of the fact that maybe you might be interested and then they they bring you aboard some people just advertise in christianity today yeah you know i mean so so you find all sorts of different avenues for that but i don't i don't really know too many people that don't at some point or another when they're pastors kind of struggle with that yeah you know if, if I feel that it's time for, for me to like take another call, well, how do I do that? You know, now, of course, within the Missouri Synod or a structured church, that's all set up for you. You know, you go see the district president, you go talk about these things and put your name on a call list and things like that. You know, in a lot of other settings, there isn't a formalized procedure. So how do I know when it's time for me to, to go? You know, how do I know when when I should say, yeah, you know, I've, I've reached the point where I think that God is calling me elsewhere. Um, so it's it can cause quite a bit of conflict for a lot of people. In some places, you know, in some churches, there have been pastors who have been called and then they have not been, you know, they have not been faithful servants. They have uh, misused their position or they have done something that is not in the best interests of their congregation, their congregants, um, you know, just the spread of the word of God. You know, in in situations like that, you know, a congregation might kind of second guess themselves about, you know, how they do the call, um, you know, how this all happens. And I know, you know, everything kind of happens for a reason, but can you talk a little bit about that? That's a tough subject, but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it is. It, it that's very real, and it and it's something that you have to face. Sometimes, you know, sometimes people wind up leading a congregation almost by default because you can't get anybody else to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people wind up in that position almost by convenience because they're like a family member or whatever else and the church is basically built around their family. So they wind up, we'll call this guy, you know, he, he's, he's a good guy. And many times, of course, those things don't work out all that well. You know, I think we just noticed that kind of in a, uh, maybe in a, a stunning sense with Jerry Falwell's son. Mm, you know and and being the president of liberty university and then finding Mm. out that really he didn't have a lot of christian um right type of of ideas there um and actually was more fulfilling this almost as a secular role Mm. um and i think that's why we do it's an important task and it, it, it's something that when you read in the New Testament, you know, it can be taken almost in a nonchalant sense. Well, Paul just tells 
Timothy and Titus to basically appoint elders, you know, mm -hmm. just, just appoint them. Yeah. And, but we realized that likely there was a great deal more to that. In other words, these are people that had really demonstrated themselves to be very, very faithful people. Mm -hmm. So they were to appoint faithful men to this job. And I think that's where we come to the point of, of where I have some problems, and I'm sure a lot of other people do, where Paul also mentions that this isn't something for a novice to undertake. Mm, yeah. It's got to be somebody that's been tried, that, right. that, that you have some background that you can look at and you can say, well, yeah, this person, nobody's going to be perfect, but they have shown themselves to be uh, called. You know, they, they've yeah. shown themselves to have that um, behavior or whatever else or, or to have a track record that says, yeah, they, they, they can do this job. Yeah, and I think that the, you know, I, I haven't attended an old Apostolic Lutheran church, uh, but I've heard, you know, that a lot of, many times the way that they approach bringing someone into the pulpit is kind of Sunday morning. They just tap someone on the shoulder and say, you're going up. And that has kind of always rubbed me a little the wrong way. Like, okay, you're just going to take any random person. And then I know that the idea there is, is um, the spirit will give them something to, to say, but yes. the scripture doesn't say that the scripture is, is actually the opposite. Like you said, where, you know, don't put a novice up there. It's uh, you know, the, the spirit will, I'm sure, you know, lead and guide, but the scripture is clear that you also need to prepare for this. You need to have the necessary um, study. Yeah, study yeah. to show thyself approved. Right? And the this spirit is and the word have always got to be together. Yes. You understand that there can't be any differentiation there. Mm -hmm. So if if the word tells you that the spirit is never going to do opposite of that. That's right. Yeah. You know, and and that's where we really have to come back to this point. Yeah, you anybody could preach at any time. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> anybody could. Yeah. And given the proper situation, that could take place. Yeah. Where, where God needs to have somebody deliver a message and nobody's around there that, that has been called to do it before, that, yeah, that could take place. But that's much more of an emergency type of situation mm -hmm. than it is the norm in the church. Uh, the expectation is you're going to have a person that God has gifted and called to do the work that you recognize this and that person is going to do that. So it's not really a good idea to just draw names out of a hat or do something like that. So maybe this is highlighting my own insecurities, but um, I'm going to spring this on you. So if you're uncomfortable with it, just let me know. But um, uh, Paul lays out the qualifications for the office of the ministry in Timothy. And um, when you read that list, you know, I, I think, um, Okay, this, you know, I like, if you give me like a really long yardstick, like maybe like I'm a husband of one wife, um, I, I, I fit that qualification. But um, even then, when you get down to brass tacks and like, you know, think about um, the nature of sin and, and how it doesn't just take, the, take place in the realm of um, our, our actual deeds, but even in our hearts, it's like, oh, 
you know, I don't, I don't measure up to any of that. And um, so, uh, you know, we do this every year when we select our board members, we read those qualifications. And I guess the idea is that we'll, we'll, we'll try to pick men who fit that set, but I don't know anybody who fits those qualifications. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the qualifications for the ministry and, and uh, how, how that's to be applied or? Yes, because that's one of the most important things that there is. I think that any person that sits there and says, I fulfilled all those things, they've already violated them. <laughs> They're lying. Yeah. You know, this is, this is not something that's possible within the human realm. This is now talking about the new creation in Jesus Christ, that, that we're counting now fully on the new creation in Jesus Christ. And it's not something that you can sit down and say, yep, I can check this off the list. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do this. It's more in the sense of the congregation coming to you and saying, but this is the way that we see you. You have to understand that God, by the Holy Spirit, has worked this to make this so this is the way that we see you. It, it's not your fault. It's not that, that you're ever going to live perfectly. But as God has given the new creation and the new creation is now in place, that this is now evidenced in your life that that new creation has been established. And with the way that you carry yourself amongst other people is now according to that new creation. It's just like, you know, the gospel text for this week, you know, of, of Matthew 25, of, of the great white throne judgment and understanding these people are saying, well, when did we ever see you? When did we ever do this? Mm -hmm. and, and Jesus is saying very clearly, well, it's when you did this to these other people that, that you did it to me. And that's what you see in, in those qualifications. It's got to be according to the new creation, not evaluating oneself in the old one. I think that goes really well with a book that my dad, Ron, uh, recommended to me called uh, Hammer of God by Bo. Oh, isn't that a great book? It's a great yeah. book. That and is just a wonderful book. Your dad did that because it's a Norwegian guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's so true. That's you. You know him too well. Or wait, yeah, is the Jake. Norwegian guy the the pastor or the author? Uh, Bo Geert is Norwegian. Norwegian. I thought yeah. he was a bishop in the Church of Sweden. Oh, I don't know. I thought he was. Actually, Norwegian. that's a good question. I think yeah. he was Swedish. That's okay. Now the listeners know that Jay can be wrong. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> you need to disappear. Well, see, I'm Norwegian too, so I'm trying to there stick with the Norwegian. You got to yeah, stick. The with Hammer them. of God is such a. Um, I, there's there's a couple scenes in there that are just so amazing that uh, we yeah. could probably do a couple episodes on that. Oh my gosh! I, I wanted I to. I should have listed that as one of my favorite books. Actually, I, yeah. I I wanted to read one passage because I think it goes really well with what we're talking about right here. So he, he is really feeling this, these feelings of inadequacy, you know, and this is fairly early in the book. It's page, I don't know, it's Kindle shows 16% of the way through the book, but he reads uh, Luke 22, 30, verse 32. Um, but I have, and he, it's, it's Jesus talking to Peter on the way to Gethsemane, but I have pr prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he really kind of thinks about the words, strengthen thy brethren. And he says, he prays, Lord, Lord, how canst thou, Lord, is it thus thou rewardst my transgression? 
Are you rewarding my transgressions? Do you clothe me in grace because I have so deeply despised thee? Lord, I am too insignificant, Lord. I am not fit. You know my pride. You know I have wanted all the glory for myself. You know that I have wanted to be seen and admired, but not to serve and bear thy cross. Lord, have mercy upon me. If you are still not done with me, take me completely. And then it says, he, dealt, he knelt in silence. He seemed to feel that his whole being flowed slowly into the hands of God, that he was lifted out of all the past and gradually poured into a new mold, a new life and a new will, which took him in its strong grip. And when God took his soul in his hand, he felt the challenge, strengthen thy brethren as an all constraining and dominating call. Dear Lord, he murmured, if thou will use me, I will go do thy bidding. So I, I thought that was really good because it, oh, it speaks to what you said there, Jay, that um, it's a new it's a new being. It's not who you are in, individually. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a wonderful, wonderful book. Very, very powerful book. I should probably finish it. I'm like halfway through. <laughs> oh, really? Or at least 16%. At least 16%. You know, you know I'm at least 16% of the way through. <laughs> I read that book a couple of years ago and I really identified with the first part of it about Savonius, um, just being a young pastor myself. And I, 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 I should reread that section every other day, it seems like, but there's that one <laughs> scene where, um, at the very beginning where he has to go and like he, the, they're in that like party of bishops and, uh, of clergy and, uh, some, uh, more respected elder bishop, or elder pastor um, has one of his congregants show up um, to this party saying that someone's on their deathbed and they need the pastor. And this guy, this older guy doesn't want to go. So they make the young guy go and he didn't want to go either. He wanted to rub elbows with the bigwigs, but eventually he's got to take this horse and buggy ride eight hours to go and visit this guy or, you know, it's just a long trip. And, uh, and it, it's just amazing to see um, how he goes to then try to comfort the guy and just can't do it. And this woman comes in and gives the guy comfort. And it's just, it's just an amazing, amazing eye-opening scene. I, I listeners read the hammer of God yeah, um, and then, and then read your Bible. <laughs> it doesn't need to be in that order. Yes. Yeah. 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 But the hammer yeah. of God, I, I can't, cannot recommend it enough. Yeah. Um, it's a great book. So, uh, Paul, um, I, I do want to um, keep moving on here, but Paul says um, to Timothy, and this is kind of what we're talking about. He says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust, lusts, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Could you give us a short Bible study on those verses and explain what Paul's getting at here? Um, well, yeah, I can. Um, but I mean, it's just very, very interesting. Of course, the, the, I remember translating this years ago. Um, and I, I, uh, was, I did this for a kid that I taught for a while at the association of free Lutheran congregations. I, I subbed in there for a guy and taught some history classes. And there was a kid there that, that, 
um, was a student of mine. And when he was ordained, I had translated this and, and given it to him. Um, and it, it really is very, very remarkable. It's a very remarkable statement that Paul is saying here to Timothy, um, that he, he's actually um, turning to him and telling him, this is really the, the binding thing to this office. You know, um, he, he uses this, this term that reflects the idea of testimony. Um, I'm, I'm kind of binding you to testimony before God. Um, and the Lord Jesus, and he, and he indicates very clearly, and, and there's kind of a note here, a very somber note, because he's telling him that, well, Jesus is the one who's going to come and finally judge the earth. You know, so in reality, you need to understand the gravity of this. Um, the gravity of this is that, that the message is life and death. You know, um, the people that you're dealing with, you really are dealing with their life or their death. And so it, it's, it's fundamental for you to, to recognize this, to recognize the gravity of, of what you're doing. And he tells him then very clearly, in, in the most beautiful terms, he simply says, all you need to do is speak the word. He says, this is what you need to do. This, this is what really you need to do. He says, you, you speak the word. And he says, and, and this is, the King James does this, and it, it makes it hard for people to kind of understand what he's talking about. He says, um, be instant, and, and that's all, that's kind of more, probably you would see it translated, be always ready, mm. be always ready. He says, um, and then it uses the term in season for eukairos, which actually means at a good time. Mm. And then he uses akairos, which is kind of like at a bad time mm -hmm. or, or at. And what he means by this really is when they want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. Mm. That, that's really the sense of this. He says, you preach the word says it doesn't matter whether they want to hear it or they don't want to hear it. He says, and that's why he says, so you use it then for reproof and for rebuke. He says, you know, in exhortation, in other words, encouragement and for teaching. He says, you don't go to something else for those things. You know, that's, that's what you need. That's what you do. He says, because... And, of course, this is Paul writing almost 2,000 years ago. And he's saying there's a time when people are not going to put up with this. They're not want, going to want what really is, and the term that's used here in Greek is the word we get the English word hygiene from, means something that's healthy. You know, they're not going to want healthy, you know, they use doctrine, but here it, it really refers to a corpus of teaching says they're not going to want health, healthy teaching. But according to their own desires, they're going to get themselves teachers that 
are going to tell them what they want to hear, which is what do you mm -hmm. mean by the itching ears things? Yeah. They're going to have an itch in their ears and these teachers are going to scratch it for them. Right. Is kind of the analogy that Com confirmation bias, uh, hearing what they want to hear. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and he says, and then they're going to turn away their ears from the truth. Mm -hmm. He says, so by this, he says, in other words, they're not going to hearken to the word anymore. They're going to want what well, he uses the term fables. Mm -hmm. Technically, you would call it more like myths. They're mm -hmm. contrived religious ideas. Mm -hmm. um, he says, and but you, then he concludes this by saying, but you pay attention to all of this. You know, you need to be wary of all of this and expect that you're going to take it on the chin to some degree. Yep. He says that, that you need to endure afflictions. You know, yeah, you're going to preach the word and not everybody's going to like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not everybody's going to want to go along with that. Yeah. And you have to understand this and do the work of an evangelist. And of course, here, what all he means by this is basically what he said above. You know, you're to preach the word. You're to preach the evangel, the, the gospel, the good news. He says, so you do the work of an evangel preacher, a gospel preacher. He says, and that demonstrates your call, really, he says. Mm -hmm. That's demonstrating that you have been called and you've been placed in the office. So, yeah, that's just a fabulous passage, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to go back to all the time, to understand that, yeah, there's a lot of people, and, and I don't mean any indictment against people, but there's a lot of people nowadays that like cute little trite stories or like different mm -hmm. other things in sermons. And oftentimes the cute little trite story or whatever else makes up the great bulk of the message. <laughs> and, and people, that's what they really want to hear. They want to hear sappy stories or they want to hear stories about puppies or things like that right. and different sort of things like that. But that's not really the office. The office is the declaration of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And it may not get you a lot of numbers. You know, it may have the opposite effect, as a matter of fact. But you need to understand, you need to be faithful to that message. Mm -hmm. You need to constantly be proclaiming that message. You're not asking when you go to prepare a sermon, you're not asking, well, what's going to make people happy? You know, I need to go to the word and have you tell me through that word what, what you want said. You know, I need to be attuned to you through that word to say what you want said. You, you know, mean the Lord. What's that? Yeah, the Lord. And understand, you know, I, and all I'm going to do is I'm going to do my best to get out of your way. You know, I'm, I'm just going to do my best to get out of your way. I'm just going to hear that word as you bring it to me. And that's what I'm going to deliver. You know, and, and I'm not claiming some special thing or anything like that. I, I don't have that. But I'm just saying it's like Luther's sacristy prayer, you know, where he basically tells God, if you don't do this, he says, it's not going to happen. You know, and I love that. <laughs> I he love that him, sacristy If you don't do prayer. this, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So I'm praying to you to do this because that's what the people really need to hear. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really where we 
come back to this and understanding. That's exactly what Paul was telling Timothy. You know, you go, you preach that word. God will take care of everything else. That doesn't mean it's going to be an easy pathway for you. You know, because it's not. But you need to understand that God's still taking care of it. Yeah, I'd like to, um, I, I uh, just happen to have, since I'm in my office, I happen to have this sacristy prayer up. And I'd, I'd like to share it because it is marvelous. And I yeah. try to, I try to pray it as much as I can remember or the gist of it anyway, but uh, before every sermon, but it goes like this. Oh, Lord God, dear Father in heaven, I am indeed unworthy of the office and ministry in which I am to make known your glory and to nurture and to serve this congregation. But since you have appointed me to be a pastor and teacher, and the people are in need of the teaching and the instruction, be my helper and let your holy angels attend me. Then, if you are pleased to accomplish anything through me, to your glory and not to mine, or to the praise of men, grant me out of your pure grace and mercy a right understanding of your word, and that I may also diligently perform it. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, Shepherd and Bishop of our souls, send your Holy Spirit that he may work with me to will and to do through your divine strength, according to your good pleasure. Amen. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, uh, this is kind of going back to that portion of what Paul says. Um, I, I happen to be at a funeral today where um, I had the honor to uh, serve in that capacity. And uh, when it talks about turning to fables, just maybe this is just because it's on my mind, but I think it's most evident to me, you know, I, I, I used to look at this as like a future um, event where people are going to, you know, there's going to be this en masse turning away and turning to fables. But uh, the more I've been in the ministry, I think what Paul is warning against is just simply our human nature. Our human nature is to turn away and to turn to fables. Because when, and, and, and you'll see this most often when somebody dies in a tragic way, um, well-meaning people, extremely well-meaning people with very good hearts, and I don't mean to disparage anyone, but they'll say things like, heaven needed another angel, so they called so-and-so home. Or, um, like, or, or even like something like, um, well, they lived a good long life, so um, we can be, you know. And um, uh, you hear those, really, a lot of those things are, they have more root in pop culture than they do in the scriptures. They have more root in, you know, a, a book or, you know, but not the Bible. And uh, I, I have a buddy who's a, I, I go to this Lutheran pastor study and uh, uh, he, it was a really profound moment for me, but I was going to preach at a funeral and um, he just simply said, may, may Christ be with you as you proclaim his resurrection in the face of death. Mm. And it like framed every funeral that I'm ever going to do. But he was telling me a story where, um, he was hearing a lot of that stuff and he's the chaplain at a VA hospital in Fargo. And he said that he got up there um, during this funeral to a bunch of strangers. And he basically just said, you guys are trying to comfort yourself with lies. And he said, this is not good. He said, you, because you're shortchanging yourself, God's promises are far more comforting than your lies. And I was like, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty uh, to take it. <laughs> yeah, to take it on head on like that. But yeah, I, we have that nature to turn to fables for comfort instead of what God's promises actually are. And uh, uh, anyway, I thought that was particularly interesting there. Yeah, because it comes to us in homeopathic doses. Is how I heard one guy talk about it. it. It's not like front on. It's not like a big, 
thing. It just comes in homeopathic doses. It's just a little bit of this, you know, it's, it's a little bit diluted, you know, it comes to you in this sense. I remember I had somebody tell me once about the Sermon on the Mount, um, where Jesus says, you know, if somebody strikes you, you turn the other cheek. And the guy looked at me and he said, well, he can't have meant that. He says, because you can't live that way. He says, people will take advantage of you all the time. And the guy was a Christian, you know, and things like that. But, and, and I really didn't know what to say. You know, mm-hmm. I've got to honestly admit, I didn't know, even know what to say to that. Because it's kind of like, but Jesus said it. You know, the reality <laughs> right? is Jesus said that. And yeah. Jesus lived that way. Right. You know, and Jesus tells us to follow him and live that way. And so, and we've got the Apostle Paul, and he lived that way. You know, and you can read of many of the church fathers, they lived that way. Yeah. So that's not really true. What you said is not true. You can live that way. And as a matter of fact, Jesus would never tell you anything that's wrong. Mm-hmm. He'd never tell you something that that you need to dilute you know, or, or you need to do something like that with. And yeah, that's how it happens. It's in homeopathic doses that all of a sudden you turn around and you begin to think, well, yeah, but he didn't, he doesn't really mean that. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't, he didn't mean that. Yeah. I think anytime we start saying stuff like God would never do that or say it that way or mean that, then we're, we're really making ourselves our own God. And yeah. putting our, our, our reason above what his is. Yeah, Luther's commentary on Psalm 117, one of my favorites. 44 pages on two verses. And that's, what he, that's what he talks about in there, is about how we create this idol. Yeah. Out of two of the most, you would never expect anything like that out of Psalm 117. <laughs> you know, you're reading Psalm 117, and it's like, holy Toledo, you know what? Why all of a sudden happened there? Yeah, but he just kicks it into high gear, you know. Forty <laughs> pages on those two verses, and that's where he gives that very controversial statement: "You cannot know God unless you first know Him as the devil." You know, and people don't really understand what he's talking about there. But what he means is idolatry. Mm-hmm. He says you invent a god, and God shows up and smashes the living daylights out of that idol. Well, you think that's the devil. Mm. says you know the devil has come in and smashed your god he says so you try to resurrect it and then god comes and smashes that one too you know until you really come to understand that there is no god but god yeah and god will not brook any rival in your life so god is the one that's actually destroying all of this idolatry and bringing us to the place of nothingness only to Mm -hmm. fill us with everything, you know, so that we realize, yeah, I'm bankrupt. I'm totally bankrupt before you. I got nothing. You know, I'd like to tell you, I got a little bit of something somewhere or another that makes me better than somebody. You know, I know that I'm better with, and then you realize, wait a second, I'm not. Mm -hmm. All of the world, like Paul says in Romans 3, we're all together under sin. We're all together in that way so that we recognize the only salvation we had was the coming of God's son in the flesh mm-hmm. and that he purchased our redemption in his blood so that we're totally undone and then we're totally done. 
you know, it is yeah. finished. Yeah, that's um, one of the things I love about that third, uh, something that I found more profound the longer I've uh, been a pastor or really just been a Christian. But in that third chapter, Paul quotes the psalm and he says, the venom of asps is on their tongue, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, speaking to the poison that comes out of our mouth, uh, according to our human nature, you know, it's even even when we don't think we're we're uh, speaking things that are bad. Um, when we're when we're raising up that um, idol of me, um, what do we talk about? You know, we talk about me. We talk about I. You know, I think there's a song there somewhere. But uh, the the whole idea being that um, you know, it's not just what we do. It's not just what we say. It's who we are, according to that old nature, sinful yeah. and unclean. And then. Um, but the amazing thing is, is when he concludes that and says that a man is justified by faith and not the works of the law, it's almost like he's turning it all on his head. Now it's not about what you do, but it's about who you are in Christ Jesus, that Christ mm -hmm. for you. Yes. And exactly. I love that. Yeah, me too. Moving on here. Um, how, how were pastors raised up during the time of the apostles? Like how did Timothy become a pastor? Do we know? I'm not Should I know old. this? I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> the, the, Am I exposing my own ignorance by not knowing how no, to, by asking no, that question? No, it, it, it's very hard to determine. The only book that I know of that's been written on this, um, if you're really interested in the subject of theological education, there's a guy, uh, Justo Gonzalez, and he wrote a book. He's a, he's a church historian. He wrote a book on the history of theological education. And that's basically what he says when he talks about it. We don't really know. We don't know anything much about it at all. He says the only thing we can look at it is look at the scripture. And that's what Paul tells Timothy to do is to appoint faithful men. Paul seems to indicate that that's what he did with Timothy. You know, that, that he put him in the office. He says through the laying on of his hands. You know, and he's telling him to stir up that gift that's within you through the laying on of my hands, where he seems to have followed through in that teaching of the church, that that's how this was done. Um, and that's all we've got. You know, honestly, you know, that that's all we've got. So when um, did we start seeing a more um, formalized process? Then you can read Gonzalez, too, because he talks about that <laughs> in terms of the catechumenate. You know, what, what happens is that the catechumenate takes place in the ancient church where people are being prepared for baptism. Mm. And <laughs> so catechesis are, are being converted. education? For well, yeah, it does, actually. It, it kind of, in, mm. it means teaching, normally mm. by question and answer, largely. Mm. Um, and so the catechumenate arose within the church to establish uh, a type of thing to make sure that people were confessing the faith to be received into the faith. And he talks about this as, well, a lot of the people then that were coming to the church and being converted that wound up pastors wound up going through the catechumenate. You know, so, so that was part of their training then. Um, and actually the only part of the training that they had then he goes on to establish how this developed. You went through after the catechumenate, which is 
And then you also have the schools. So you have the school of Justin Martyr. You have the schools of some of these more famous church fathers. And they had adherents. But they were learning mathematics. They were learning rhetoric. They were learning all sorts of things in those schools. And theological education or religious training was part of that as well. And then you finally come to the point of Augustine and Ambrose, and you deal with the, the monks. You know, it's during the time of Augustine and Ambrose that you start to see a little bit more of a more systematized type of educational structure. Um, on Christian doctrine by Augustine kind of becomes the standard for this, by which this is done. And then it's left to the monks, and this becomes the Augustinian canons. You know, so now these things are handed down for this type of training through the monks. And so now the training is being done in that way. And of course, Luther is an Augustinian friar, and he winds up, you know, with this whole thing of the calling of the ministry that brings it to us, you know, in the way that we understand it through the Reformation period. So we're so that's all, basically how it goes. Were the pastors in that during that time were they were they monks themselves or were they taught by monks? Taught by monks mostly. Mm. Would taught. they have to like cloister themselves off in the monastery for a period of time? Before? I'm not really sure. I'm not mm. sure. Now I don't. I don't think they were by necessity monks themselves mm. because you have the the monastic orders and then you have what's called the regular clergy. Mm. The, those would be the people that were actually serving congregations. But the educational aspect of things was tied to a certain degree through the monasteries. So like um, it, it, when, the, uh, when the Catholic Church was fully developed after, um, you know, when they were fully ensconced in their own way, um, did, they, did they start, when do, when do we see the first seminaries crop up? It wasn't not at the monasteries? Not till the Counter-Reformation. Mm, really? Yeah, that's when the term seminary is coined, and there are specific schools that are set up for that purpose. Well, Luther was very... Uh, he was not very impressed by the quality of education that a lot of the pastors had uh, that he visited, from what I understand, and that was Absolutely. a big motivation for building, or for, for creating the catechism, large and small. Yes, very much so. And, and that type of instruction with the necessity of revisiting it, you know, and he's not very nice to us, you know, in the words of these things. If, if you think that you're, if you're above the catechism and, and repeating it and reciting it and things like that, he basically says, well, you're a blockhead, you know, and <laughs> something must have happened to you, you know, because that that's impossible. You're, you're arrogant. Right. <laughs> and, I think that that's indicative of his thinking that you wound up with this elitist type of clergy person that mm -hmm. really thought that they were above all these types of things, you know, and that, you know, I mean, Chemnitz writes about this in his, his handbook, his Enchiridion is all about that, about going back and visiting the pastors and making sure that the pastors within the congregations are familiar with these things and, and have a full knowledge of them. So they never looked kind of beyond that. 
you know, that, that the foundation was the beginning, but also kind of like the ending. You were always coming back around to that. So one question that I have that just kind of comes to mind is, you know, we, we kind of came out of, because of the Re Reformation, we came out of uh, Catholicism and Luther himself was a Roman Catholic. Um, but why did, why did we get rid of the concept of priests? Is the, what's the difference? You know, like Catholics have priests, we have pastors. Like what, what's the difference here between those two things and why don't we call our pastors priests? It likely stems from the sacrifice of the mass, of understanding the mass as a sacrifice. And so- That's um, a Catholic understanding, right? Yeah, you know, and, and it's not totally un-Lutheran. I mean, there, there's quite a bit of writing. Uh, Kitreus wrote quite a dissertation, I think, on the sacrifice of the mass. I think it was him that did it. Um, and these are, there, there's an aspect of the understanding. Yeah, no, no, this is going to get us back into quantum reality. But I mean, <laughs> Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite things to think of. In mm -hmm. other words, that while he's hanging on the cross, he's already the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. So in the understanding of God, the time frame has no value in that right. regard so jesus is always so to speak the sacrificial lamb so when we're seeking the blood of jesus that's perfectly acceptable because mm -hmm. the blood of jesus is always that reality that's present for us mm -hmm. even though we would say physically it was shed once on calvary's cross we constantly live with the shedding of that blood it, mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a reality for us at that level and so the sacrifice of the mass is kind of along that same sort of idea but unfortunately it's hidden within the realms of aristotelianism you know where they're trying to come to grips with it according to aristotelian metaphysics and try to figure out well how can you be sacrificing jesus well that means when you do the mass you have to constantly sacrifice him over and over again you know, so we can say physically that this is the body and blood of Jesus. Why? Well, because we performed a sacrifice again. And I think that's where the idea of the priest came in. And that's why Lutherans and, and other churches of the Reformation turned away from that term. Mm -hmm. I don't think they did right away. Hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think, you know, and I'm, I'm not telling you that I know this. I don't. You know, I don't, but I don't think they did it right away. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the, the church service, I believe in German, is still called the mass amongst mm -hmm. Lutherans. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't change that. Yeah. Um, but it just became more uncomfortable for them to embrace that terminology. So they, they moved into the idea of a pastor or reverend, you know, mm -hmm. is the title that comes out technically yeah. when you send a letter to a pastor, it's not supposed to be pastor. You send it to reverend because technically that's the title. Okay. So, I mean, things like that, we've gone in that direction mm -hmm. and have put away the idea of the priest because we don't support the sacrifice of the mass. I see. Okay. Well, that's, 
Yeah, that, I that, think, I think, you know, <laughs> I, I can't like give you references for that. But. Yeah, no, that, 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 I appreciate that. That does give me more perspective on that. So what was the, um, we talked about, you mentioned the Reformation. Um, I'm thinking about our own movement and in Finland, um, uh, when they would, um, there was obviously a, uh, a point where the pastors in the state church had kind of um, given in to uh, what would you call it? Theological liberalism. Uh, do you, do you know much about the state of the state church uh, before Lestadius's time? I know about it secondhand through Dr. Sarnivar. You know, Dr. Sarnivar really, and Elmer Ullinimi, you know, um, they taught us very thoroughly about those things of understanding what was going on at the church in the church of Sweden, which is technically the church that was the head of the church of Finland at that time. Mm. Um, and we see it going back to the hammer of God, you know, where, where he talks about some of that stuff too, you know, the, the younger guy coming in there trying to tell the older guy all this stuff and things <laughs> like that. And the older guy's just kind of sitting there smiling because yeah. he kind of knows better. You know that that this stuff isn't very workable it's it's university talk and unfortunately you know you you'd think that that was an exaggeration but it really wasn't i mean i guess there were sermons on planting radishes i mean there were there were all sorts of things that were done out of <laughs> some of those congregations because everything boiled down now to just practicality you know, to so the church, because it was part of the state, was actually engaged in these sort of things. And that's what caused a lot of people to question the, like, the spiritual dimension of all of this. You know, is this just a place where we go to kind of like we show up to get, in a, and I don't mean this in a bad term, I'm going to reflect the terminology of the CTCR document, you know, that, and that's Concordia and what they wrote about sacraments. But basically, you know, that, that we go to the magic act. Mm -hmm. you know, so we do the magical sacrament and that's what we need to do. And we need to do that periodically. And so that then we can say that we're Christians and then we can learn how to plant our radishes. <laughs> um, and, and, so it was very disturbing to them, you know, especially when some of them read like the works of Luther and things like that. This was very troubling to them. And they began to, to really question a lot of that. And of course, we believe very strongly that the Holy Spirit of God was, was pulling them in that direction to, to bring them out of a lot of that. And so they rejected the rationalism some of them substituted pietism for it. Mm -hmm. um, so the pietistic groups had a lot of influence there. Um, but others of them became like very confessional. You know, they, they became confessional Lutherans. Mm -hmm. um, and you see all sorts of these different things going on. But mm -hmm. that was largely a reaction to that uh, rationalist viewpoint that was present in the church of sweden at the time yeah the reason i ask is um when i i had some friends who lived in norway 
um, when I, before I went to seminary and uh, mm-hmm. when they heard I was going to seminary, they got really worried because um, in Norway, when people went to seminary, they would come back like these liberal, uh, you know, that, that there would be a, you know, not, not necessarily a time of learning the scriptures, but a time of learning how the scriptures, how to get around them or something. And yeah. um, is, I, I kind of was wondering if that's why formal education is something that uh, as apostolic Lutherans, we're, we're kind of skeptical of even to this day. Most certainly. And I'm skeptical of myself. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm highly <laughs> skeptical of it. You know, um, you, you do. You have to be very, very, very cautious with it. Mm-hmm. Because you can get smitten with ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I saw it in the LCA that I grew up in. I saw it in the Missouri Synod. I see it amongst apostolic Lutherans. It's not always a, a formal idea, but it's something that becomes ensconced in your mind to the point where it becomes idolatrous. You know, you, you worship this understanding of something instead of recognizing very clearly, well, God, the Holy Spirit, is always trying us. He's always sifting us. He's always bringing us back to the core. He's bringing us back to the essence of the scripture. So that my understanding, even though outwardly I may be confessing something that's very orthodox or whatever mm-hmm. else, I may have a very bad, unorthodox understanding of that orthodox thing. Mm-hmm. So I can't simply recite it like a scholar's parrot. You know, I have to, I have to be sifted and be brought into this all the time by the word. You know, and that's why, you know, I believe very strongly that that's our central aspect of everything is always bringing people back to the word. You know, we, we've always got to come back to the reading and hearing of the word. It, it's the word that really provide, you know, in Lutheran understanding, it's norma normans. You know, it is mm-hmm. the norm of all norms. It mm-hmm. is the thing that guides every other thing. The confessions are worthless unless they are reflections of the scripture. Mm -hmm. If they're interpreted to be contrary to the scripture, then they're worthless. Mm. You know, the, the norm is the biblical text. So we constantly have to be summoned back to that biblical text. And, and this is what I think that our fathers by God's grace, and I use that term of them, that, that they saw or they experienced. You know, it came to them from a number of different avenues. And I'm not Elmer Ulanimi. You know, he, he had a much better grasp of that and understanding than I ever will. And I'm certainly not Dr. Sarnivara because he was raised with it, you know, and, and he came through a lot of that stuff. Um, but I do think that that was really the big motivating thing is these people saw by God's grace that what they were being taught was not accurate according to the word. And they were summoned by the Holy Spirit to a different pathway. You know, they were, they were given and they came for the hearing of the word and also for the sacraments, you know, which I think is underplayed quite often. You know, I remember Elmer telling us stories about the 
people from Lapland that had to come a long ways to go to get the um, to get the sacrament of the altar in sleighs, you know, in below zero temperatures and travel hours that way because it was so necessary for them to come and get the Lord's Supper. Yeah. You know, and, and so they had a very high emphasis on word and sacrament, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really a core thing of our movement, you know, of, of understanding the word takes physical, it has physical representation. And, and we really understand that when we talk about the absolution, because I believe that the person absolving me is Jesus Christ. Right. You know, sacramentally, that's what's taking place there. That person's words. Uh, yes. Anyway, he is actually forgiving me. That's what, yeah. And, and, and that kind of goes back to your, of that. And that goes back to your kind of the, the, the nature of the timeless, timelessness of, of his sacrifice yes. uh, comes back. It's like, well, how could Jesus himself be speaking these words? It was 2000 years ago that that happened. Well, it's timeless. It, when, when you say those words and it's connected to those elements, it's right now. That's what Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so when we me, see that within the history of our movement, that was yeah. very much, that was very real for them. For sure. You know, and that's why we love it so much. Absolutely. You know, that, that's why we love our movement so much. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's very, and one of the, one of the whole goals of this podcast, you know, Nick and I talked about this in the very beginning was to, to give people who are, you know, just, just, you know, people like me, you know, out there just kind of, I've been in the ALC my whole life and uh, I've picked up a lot of this stuff because of my dad, but, but, you know, honestly, I haven't studied it formally, but just, just understanding who we are and why we believe the way we do it. A lot of it is in context of history and what was happening at those times and what the challenges were that, that they had. Um, and so I, I think uh, one of the, let's see here. Uh, my question is, you know, for a pastor now, um, we've seen that formal education has had its, you know, some kind of downsides and there's maybe been viewed with some suspicion, not without real reason, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, but how important is it for pastors now for the Apostolic Lutheran Church to learn Greek and Latin and Hebrew and really kind of go kind of deep diving into this stuff? This is not necessarily something, you know, my dad didn't have the formal education, didn't go to seminary. Um, but, uh, but I know he always valued it. He always valued the people that, that had that education. So how important is it, do you think, uh, nowadays? I still think it's very important. But I think, you know, and, and like, when we get back to this, it is we, we need, I think, uh, a different way of doing it. You know, the, the way of doing it according to the Middle Ages is not the way that we need to do it. We, we need to understand that largely we're, we need, and that's why I really respect our Federation in this regard, we need to have it so it's done within the congregation that the congregation Congregations know who the people are that really have the abilities to to serve 
that shouldn't be an arbitrary decision that we just mm -hmm. kind of make on paper out of an application. You know, we always, when we receive an application, the application has to have recommendations from proven Christian people and proven Christian pastors. We have to have that in order for us to consider accepting a student. But even that isn't foolproof. You know, and yeah, I got in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for very good reason. Because I always loved you. And I still do. Aww. You oh, know, that's nice. When you were a young man, very, very young, and I used to come out to the West Coast and do those things for the youth meetings, I remember you very, very well and very, very fondly. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of those gifts in you back then. So don't sell yourself short. Thanks. That means a lot. The, mm -hmm. the reality of things is that God, God does this work. And, and that's why I say I'm very suspicious of higher education myself. Because I think that we can see the fruit of it in a number of cases, even in our current setting where people are simply idealized. You know, they're, they're given a, an ideology and they wind up embracing that ideology instead of really being educated. Education is exactly what St. Paul talks about. It, it's in the word. A person needs to be steeped in the word. Now, are there other things that go with this? Yes, which I think are very important in terms of the office of the pastor and its current manifestation. You wind up with some awful junk. Yeah. You've got to deal with some pretty nasty stuff nowadays. You know, and as a pastor, things like counseling, um, there's uh, just different ways that you have to deal with people. These yeah. are things that you need help with. We all do. We, we need to have help. We mm -hmm. need to help each other. And there's a means of providing a basis for that, for people to have that, to understand. Well, when you yeah. encounter this, like most people wouldn't know a Gnostic. Are there Gnostics? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, there's tons of them. We're surrounded by Gnostics. Yeah. So when you read ancient church history, then you learn about the Gnostics. You right. understand, well, now I know where this comes from. I know what, what the history of this is. You get a lot of info about them from reading your good buddy, Irenaeus. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Irenaeus takes care of the whole thing. But <laughs> this is where you, 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 you come to that place where it's very, very beneficial. It is not necessary in the sense of a necessity. Sure. That a person can't perform the job apart yeah. from this. They can they can perform that job very well. And as a matter of fact, do so. Within our movement, we can find all sorts of people that have fulfilled this very, very well. Mm -hmm. But I think, honestly, most of them would tell you that there were times when they felt very inadequate, that they wished that they had something to help them to yeah. get through this. And that's the best thing that we can do. Yeah. You know, we can't guarantee you that, 
you know, abracadabra, you're a pastor, you know, or anything like yeah. that. that. That's absurd. You know, and not by gaining knowledge are you going to become a pastor. Mm -hmm. We're just trying to help so that when you're engaged in the office, mm -hmm. that you've got something to look back upon, that your brothers in Christ have helped you to understand out of their own experience. One of the I things like that I found very valuable about seminary was... Um, uh, just the, 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 um, going through it really helped me to learn discernment. You know, the scriptures always say test, uh, or the, it, it says it in many places, but one, one place in particular, Paul urges us to, um, uh, despise not prophecy to, um, cleave to that, which is good, um, and to abhor every sighting of evil and, you know, calling us to discern what is preached. Because one of the things that I think we fall into too much, and, and I, I see this in our church and um, even sometimes in my own preaching, is that we, we often fall back on settled interpretations of texts. You know, because somebody preached it this way, we preach it that way, because that's got to be the right way. When instead we should always be, even, even the way we would interpret something one time, you know, look at it again. You know, I, I, just, I just realized that I had missed um, I, I, we don't need to get into this too much, but just in looking at the gospel text from a few weeks ago, when Jesus tells them to show him the coin, whose image and superscription is on it, you mm -hmm. know, that it says, you know, the image and superscription would have been an image of Tiberius Caesar. And it would have said Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus, which I'd never known until I heard it. But sure. um, we have those whole, uh, you know, it's kind of like the old lady who um, was teaching her daughter how to roast a ham. And she cut off the top of the ham yeah. and her daughter asked her, well, why do you do that? And uh, she said, well, well, that's how my mom did it. And finally they found the great granny and the great granny was like, well, I just did it because my roaster was too small to fit a whole ham in there. <laughs> you know, that we as pastors shouldn't be just doing what somebody did before we, us for the sake of doing it, but that we should be constantly challenging and testing and discerning to, uh, and that's where I found seminary so valuable because you're just, faced with so many different understandings and so many different things that you, you just have to learn it. Right. Uh, we, we have in my industry, software development, we have a, a term called cargo culting. And it's kind of an interesting one. The origin is uh, there were some, some natives that w grew up in this, they were in the South Pacific, Pacific after World War II. And they would they would build elaborate mock-ups of airplanes and military landing strips uh, in the hopes of summoning these godlike airplanes that would drop marvelous cargo during the war. And they mm -hmm. thought that if they did this, then they would come because they didn't understand the cause and effect of, of, well, there was a war on and we had to get planes there. And so we built these airplanes, but, or these airstrips, but they would do this in, in this, you know, this kind of sense of like not really understanding the real principles behind it, but just doing it out of kind of, you know, and, and it's kind of become this thing where it's like, oh, I'm doing this thing. It's very much like that ham, uh, but it's called cargo culting. Um, and, uh, and I do think that there's a lot of value in having this education and understanding the reasons behind things, um, understanding why, uh, why we believe the way we do, uh, even just the Hebrew and Greek words. And like you've added some, some additional context to just the King James Version interpretation or translation uh, through your 
knowledge of, of Hebrew and you can add, or Greek, and you can add that additional uh, uh, just context around it that, that makes it more clear. And, and so I do think that it's, it's a very, uh, very beneficial thing for sure, uh, you know, for, for young pastors. And I want to, uh, just to kind of, we're getting toward the end of our, our podcast here, and I want to just rapid fire over our last three questions here and then let you kind of address them all at once, if that's cool, oh, okay. Jay. Um, and it really has to do with the seminary that you are the president mm-hmm. of, uh, the mm-hmm. Inter-Lutheran Seminary. Mm-hmm. And so what is the seminary like? This is just kind of an open-ended question. You know, the class structure, you know, how intense is the study? What do you teach? Um, also, what would you say to someone who's considering attending the seminary? And then what, lastly, what is your vision for the seminary going forward? Yeah, it's always, that's always fabulous. That, that's fabulous stuff when, when you think about it. Um, because honestly, I don't really know. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's the seminary I've always stressed and, and was stressed to me. And, and by God's grace, I think he's, he's revealed to me the need to become more and more centered on the scripture. You know, it wasn't that we weren't before, we were, but to be more and more that way. Um, that fundamentally what I hope for when somebody graduates the seminary is that largely they have a good sense of at least a good sense of how to approach the scripture and and they have a hunger and desire to do that. You know, I don't think we ever exhaust it by any stretch of the imagination, but largely that's that's what we're looking at. Alongside that, we equip pastors. And that's why I always say you don't, you're not better by going to the seminary but you're better equipped, mm. you know? So there's a sense that now, well, yeah, I know, I understand this. So I know where to go to get help to take care of this. Or, you know, I know that there's, this is the problem that I can see here when I'm counseling you and things like that, because I've got a background in that. So I can get you help for this. Um, and I think that largely that's what we look at. Um, how can we best facilitate that process for you? And, and so we are, you know, there used to be, and, and you know, when I went to uh, Concordia Seminary in Fort Wayne, you had to take Greek. That was a requirement. Um, they didn't have the Hebrew requirement anymore, mm-hmm. although I wound up taking it because I was majoring in exegesis. But mm-hmm. the... Uh, you, you had to have Greek. And I don't do that to people anymore. You know, we don't make it necessary that they take Greek. Mm-hmm. We, we leave that as an option because I do think it really enriches your study. And it, and it, but it's hard. You know, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't pull any punches about it. It's not the easiest yeah. thing to do. Now, if you're really mathematically minded and things like that, then that language is a lot easier to handle for whatever mm-hmm. reason because it's very formulaic. If you're not, then it's not easy to handle. So mm-hmm. we leave those options. You know, there's there's a lot of options in that regard. Yeah. And um, 
we really want people to know that that's what they're getting into. They're, mm -hmm. When they're coming to the seminary, they're coming really to, to be immersed in the word of God. Yeah. You know, so that in all the different avenues that they have to explore as pastors, and we have a lot of people that come and take seminary classes that aren't intending to be pastors. Right. I was going to ask that. It's not just for pastors. It can be right. for people who just want a better background to understand, you know, the things that we believe. Right. And that's, that's a lot of what we look at is, mm -hmm. is how do we help you basically in terms of that understanding, come mm -hmm. to a deeper understanding of the word. Yeah. And then, you know, God's got to take care of that for you, yeah. you know, and that's what I think the vision of it going forth in the future is. It's changed. You know, we don't have a lot of people show up physically in the plant anymore. Mm-hmm. No, we're, we're going to in the spring, you know, we're very blessed to have that happen, but that's rare. Nowadays, we do a lot more online. We do a lot more with people who are located in a congregation mm -hmm. where they have other pastors, they have other guides, they have other people who are helping them and instructing them. And we're kind of like parachurch, you know, mm -hmm. we're kind of helping to do that. Yeah. Um, which I think is much more effective. I think it's a little more similar to the New Testament concept. And I honestly think that's the wave of the future. I think that's yeah. what we're going to see it is yeah. largely we're going, we've, we've, we've kind of, the rigidity has, we've lost a lot of the rigidity, mm -hmm. you know, to where we come in and say, well, you need to have this, you need to have that. No, you need to have what you need to have. And so we're, we're willing to go along with that and understand, you know, so if you come to us and you find Greek too daunting, well, then you're not going to take Greek. You know, I mean, that, that's just the way that's going to be. But we're going to help you and enhance your work in the word by giving you the insight that we can give you from the Greek to help you with this. You know, so that yeah. now at least you have that information. So, you know, and, and I also, and, and we've done this, and I, I stress this very strongly because I love this federation. Mm. You know, I wasn't raised in it. I came into it from the outside and honest to goodness, these are some of the most wonderful people. And yeah, you know of all the controversies and stuff like that, but the <laughs> controversies are a tiny, tiny portion of yeah. all of the blessings that I have re received mm -hmm. from all of these wonderful godly people in this federation. You know, so we're really working very hard and I think we've been very blessed. We built a good relationship with the central board We've got a good relationship with the great bulk of our congregations. Mm -hmm. you know, we see more and more that those walls have been broken down because we're not anti-Federation or anything like that. You know, right. we're very supportive of it. And as a matter of fact, that's where we want to be. And I think that that's where our future lies. Because let's face it, this isn't going to get any easier. You know, the times seem to indicate that you know, we're getting to be more and more of a minority position. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have to um, be very patient, but also gather as much information while we can.
because that door may close, you know, when it's going to be pretty difficult to even operate a theological school. Sometimes it looks like so. Yeah. I kind of want to um, answer at least one of those questions from a former student's perspective. And I'll, I'll do that just by saying what seminary was like for me and uh, what I miss. Um, I, some of the favorite times of my um, uh, young adult life were sitting with your dad, Jamin, and your brothers and sitting around the living room and just talking about whatever theological issues we were talking about. And uh, seminary for me felt a lot like that, where it didn't feel like, we call it formal education, but it, because of the class size, it didn't feel like a, um, like a real formal thing. You know, I'd, I'd stumble into class after um, having uh, woken up 15 minutes before, and I'd be five <laughs> minutes late to chapel, and uh, we'd start every, every day with the chapel service. And then um, it was like we were back in the living room and we were talking about whatever topic was up for discussion in that class. And there were, uh, the, the, the thing I appreciated most about it was we were really encouraged to ask any question on our mind and uh, they'd do their best to give us a good answer. And um, so I, I actually, um, that's also kind of what I miss most about it. As a, as a pastor myself, I've been serving for five years now. I really do um, miss being a student I miss um, not having uh, the, the weight of being the pastor and the teacher on my shoulders. I miss um, feeling comfortable to ask the stupid questions and to uh, hear the answers. Thankful I've been able to keep in touch with our um, seminary teachers and uh, been able to call them up and ask them some of those things. But uh, yeah, I found it to be a um, uh, much, much different than I ever thought it would be, but um, also much better. So I would... Uh, just like to, uh, if any listener is um, thinking about going to seminary, um, I would like to uh, offer, you can contact me and I would uh, help you understand some things. Um, but also, I would just like you to encourage, encourage you to go. I think um, even if you don't think uh, being a pastor is in your future, that uh, spending some time to study God's word is something that is uh, going to endure to eternal life. Um, none of the things of this world will endure, but God's word will. So. Uh, I think we should, I think it'd be good for everyone to get a head start. And I think it's something that, um, I, th I think it's, it's not going to be what you expect. And that's a good thing. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it, it becomes this daunting thing for some people, but uh, it's really not. Um, it's a lot easier to, uh, well, well, I, I shouldn't say easy. I shouldn't use the word easy. Um, it, it's definitely challenging, uh, but it's worth its weight in gold. Well, I think, uh, I think that's it for our podcast. I'd like to thank Jamin and Jay for joining us. Uh, God bless you guys and have a good rest of your day. Uh, thank you for tuning in.